1: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on this fine Thursday, May the 2nd. And as always, we want to bring you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But not in a bumper sticker way, in long form, deep discussion based on facts, learned experiences, consistent observations. And I want to pick up from where we left off yesterday – with what's going on in Venezuela and how it all ties back in together having a proper national defense, a perspective, and a strategic plan that puts – first identifies our interests, then puts our interests first, where we don't die on other people's swords. We die for our interests, and then usually when you do that, you know what? You don't have to die (laughs) because you make the right choices, and how it ultimately ties back in – to immigration, borders, drugs, crime, gangs, cartels, everything together um, that, you know, we've really been honored to take the lead on so many of these issues the last year, be ahead of the curve on so much of this stuff. But today I want to discuss with our guest more from the foreign policy aspect, starting with Venezuela. I just want to set the tone with one point that I forgot to mention yesterday, just to bring out one of the points I was making. One of my critiques of some of my colleagues in the conservative movement, conservative media, the last number of years, is that they're looking for talking points at the expense of policy outcomes. So if I want a talking point that, hey, you know, uh, uh, Trump is more pro this identity group than the left, so we're going to then pursue a policy that we should never support, such as weak on crime and jailbreak, because we want to say, well, see, we're, we're better for the blacks than you are. And really, you're, you're worse for everyone when you do that. Um, and it's the same thing here. A lot of my colleagues are very into this talking point that, see, Bernie Sanders, this is what happens when you have socialism. You have socialism in, in Venezuela. And that's, you know, in this case, that's actually a valid talking point, and I agree with it. But again, Let's be careful that that talking point doesn't cloud our strategic planning. Well, okay, well that, that, that's true, but ultimately now that Maduro is there and you have this problem, what do we do about it? What should we not do about it? And let's make sure that doesn't seamlessly get us involved in another Syria without proper planning, without proper understanding." that's a big concern I have with those on the right that are really playing up what's going on in Venezuela, but you know, with kind of the wrong focus. So to get ourselves on track, I figure there's no one better to bring back than our resident Latin American affairs expert. Joseph Humeyer has been on the show a couple times. He's executive director of Secure Free Society. They put out great stuff. We'll link to it in show notes. He's one of the foremost experts on terrorism in Latin America. He's also the author of, of the book, Iran's Strategic Penetration of Latin America. So he fully understands the different players that are embedded in the hemisphere, how we allowed that to happen over the years, and perhaps what we can do to stem the tide. So it's an honor once again to welcome Joseph to the show. How you doing?
0: Great, Daniel. Thank you again for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be on your show.
1: We always love it, but we got to take notes because, uh, you know, you pepper us with so much information. So I'm going to shut up from here. I want you to give us just start off with a briefing of what is going on. It looked like Maduro was almost going to fall. He hit his gold. He looked like he was going to leave. Then Moscow calls him up. The Cubans are there. Um what is going on, and where do you see this headed in the next number of days?
0: Yeah, so I think um, what happened on Tuesday, actually, of uh, this past week, uh, was essentially a culmination of many efforts and strategies and tactics that have been discussed and developed since uh, January of this year, since the beginning of the year, when um, the illegitimate regime of Nicolas Maduro was not recognized by the international community, and uh Interim President Juan Guaido stepped into, to, into his position and, and, and basically built uh, everything to this moment. So uh, in some ways, you want to say like Tuesday was sort of their D-Day because they were really looking to make a forcible move to be able to pressure the regime to do three things. One was to show that the military is not loyal to Nicolas Maduro. Uh, two, to fracture uh, to the military and provoke more defectors to get more defectors to come onto Juan uh, Guaido's side. And three, to uh, for, to get Maduro out of power, to, to have him, as the government says, put him on an off-ramp. To either go to Cuba, uh, Turkey, Iran, Russia, wherever wherever he ends up deciding to want to go. Now, that did not happen. Uh, that did not happen, and there's many reasons that we could get into that as to why that did not happen. But I think, uh, among everything else, is there's a fundamental uh, miscalculation on the nature of what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, I think the, uh, the U.S. administration, the Trump administration, as well as all of our allies in Latin America uh, started this effort. Now, they didn't start this effort in January of 2019. They actually started this effort in uh, January right right, the beginning of the Trump administration. Uh, and I believe that, that that effort began with trying to understand the nature of what is the Maduro regime. Uh, the premise that was developed through that process to understand what is the nature of the Maduro regime uh, was uh, as, as, as follows. The, the nature that – this is not mine. This is not just opinion, but this is what I believe the U.S. administration had came to a conclusion in concert with their allies in Latin America, which was that the Maduro regime is fundamentally a narco-state with Cuban occupation. So the strategy begins with that premise. Uh, Everything else is developed based on that premise. So if uh, Venezuela, the Maduro regime, is a narco-state with Cuban occupation, then a pressure strategy both diplomatically and economically to use uh, carrots and sticks to pressure uh, the regime and to, to use the the carrots to, to to coalesce the international community around that uh, was the heart of what this strategy was, and that so that manifested itself into uh, this past, earlier this earlier this week. Now, my uh, my thinking on this is that we ha- because it didn't necessarily work. Uh, And and obviously, there's still a little bit of time. I'm sure there's still some negotiations going on. But it doesn't look like Maduro is going to be that easy to remove. Um, I believe that we have to reexamine the premise. We have to go back and see, is that premise correct? Is Venezuela simply a narco regime with Cuban occupation, or is there more to it? So I have an alternative premise. Uh, And this would would obviously, by nature, redefine uh, the strategy and redefine the conversation, which is the regime is one thing. But uh, there is a revolution that put the regime in Venezuela to power. First, it put Hugo Chavez to power, and then obviously transferred to Nicolas Maduro in 2013. And revolutions, over and above regimes, have goals. They have ends. They have. They have. Uh, they have a north. They have where they want to be. Uh, and regimes change, but revolutions can remain as long as they stay true to their goal. And in that sense, I believe that the goal of the revolution is to use irregular migration as a way to uh, to expand the revolution for territorial conquest. Uh, Hugo Chavez defined this as Greater Colombia, uh, a, a redefinition of the geopolitical map of Latin America that doesn't recognize the borders as we see them today, but redefines it as how they want to define it, going to what they call pre-colonial times. So in that sense, I think the premise has to be that we're not just dealing with a, a, a narco state regime, we're dealing with a revolution that's established more a parallel state, which is basically a substructure that controls criminal elements, paramilitary elements, and even civic political elements that that controls the power structure in Venezuela that's tied to other anti-American revolutions around the world, including the Iranian revolution, uh, the Syrian revolution, the Russian revolution, and and, and many others. Uh, and, And so this is a much broader, more complex look at what's going on in Venezuela. When we add that new premise, then pressuring may not be enough, especially if you're not pressuring in the right points to, to fracture the regime.
1: So if I get what you're saying, it's kind of like pre-Chavez Venezuela was somewhat like the way we view Mexico. It's kind of like a narco state. It's just a failed state. There's a lot of disarray. Uh, But, you know, you have an administration that you could officially work with. They just don't have control over a lot of their territory. And you have cartels. You have the Colombian cartels in Venezuela. You have the Mexican cartels in Mexico. But then Chavez comes in with a revolution. It was a mindset. It was, uh, you know, he had a a broader vision. And he was backed and brought in many other elements, the Cubans. um, Obviously, Iran, Russia, China. So... Now, it's not just a matter of, okay, let's just get out the latest guy we don't like in a failed narco state. You're saying there's a lot more backing behind him. Do you mean in terms of constituencies?
0: In some way, there's some constituencies, obviously in Venezuela, which are Cubans and there's, you know some Arab, Syrian, Venezuelan Arabs and stuff that are in in Venezuela. But more than the internal uh, aspect of constituencies that uh, back Nicolas Maduro, uh, which I think those are limited to some level. It's the external support that he receives, and I think we've learned. These last four months, that that external support is is more robust than we believe. Now, in terms of numbers, yes, uh, I think the countries that are against Nicolas Maduro are, you know, the the G20 countries. They are the more Western uh, states, Western nations, uh, and, and and the more legitimized. Uh, uh, countries in, in 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 the world. However, uh, we can't discard that he has an alliance as well. I mean, beyond Russia, Iran, and China, some of the bigger ones. There's also Turkey, who's also an EU, uh, NATO member. Uh, they also have a. a a series of what they call the non-aligned states, uh, part of the non-aligned movement, which is collection of about 77 countries, smaller countries, and you know they may not in and of themselves uh, mean a whole lot, but if they co- you know collectively unite, they 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 can add a couple uh, you know points of power for for Nicolas Maduro. And what we've seen is that that international alliance is what establishes his ability to project his power in the country, and that international alliance is the one that formed this revolution. They also augmented the revolution and they're advancing it irrespective of Nicolas Maduro. Uh, you know, one of the problems with having Nicolas Maduro became, become the goalpost is it, it, it just completely clouds the metrics and the measures that we use to define what is success. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like right now, uh, one of the metrics that's being used to define success is defectors, military defectors from Venezuela. Matter of fact, the uh, actions that just took place in the last uh, uh, 48 and 96 hours was specifically designed to get more defectors. And, and that would have been a measure of success, including up to uh, the head of the armed forces and the defense minister of Venezuela, which according to Secretary of State Pompeo and his and, and Special Envoy Nicholas uh, Elliott Abrams, that they had negotiations on the table with these, uh, these Venezuelan uh, military leaders. That said, it, when you get this defector, if the first question that you ask him is, are you in favor of Nicolas Maduro? And he says, no. And then you say, okay, that means you must be a good guy and that we put you on our side. That's the wrong question. <laughs> the real question that you should ask them is, are you in favor of the Bolivarian Revolution? And here's what happens. Mm-hmm. They all will say they hate, they hate Nicolas Maduro, but they all still are in favor of the Revolution. So to me, if they're in favor of the Revolution, they're no good to us. Because that means that they're still operating off the same mindset, off the same playbook, off the same aspiration, of conquest, of territorial expansion, of changing the geopolitical structure, and fundamentally of weakening the United States, because that's what the revolution was all about. So why would we work with individuals that fundamentally in their hearts and minds want to weaken the United States just because they say they like one president? They dislike, I'm sorry, they dislike one president. So that's, that's fundamental. when you make one individual the goalpost. It distorts the entire policy and conversation, which I believe is what what took place in Venezuela, what is taking place in Venezuela. Although I do believe that that's changing because we're seeing that even removing that one individual is not as easy as it uh, sounds.
1: See, I, I find this whole conversation about Venezuela very frustrating because, like any conservative, certainly we have every reason to hate this guy with the you know blazing the heat of a thousand blazing suns he represents communism bad guy tied to all bad dudes bad external powers that that we hate or that are you know certainly uh, strategic problems for us and like everyone else i'd like to say bad guy doing bad things tanks running over people let's eliminate him and but my concern is you know you look at this administration you got bolton you got pompeo and you got Elliot Abrams um who's the point man on Venezuela and all of them I, I to my knowledge still believe in the Afghanistan war um there's some bad guys doing bad things there there's bad guys doing bad things in Syria but they look in my view at things too much like you're saying a one dimensional so this is what has gotten us ensnared you know, in many of these things. So to bring this to Venezuela, I would like to like anyone else, if there is a low risk versus return matrix um, analysis, low cost benefit analysis to with with a couple of, you know, Green Berets come in and take out Maduro and have an ally that could be part of a broader strategy of remaking Latin America in America's, you know, with with a broader America pro-American alliance, slowly ebbing away Russian, Chinese and Iranian influence I, I'm very much for that, but isn't it true based on what you're saying that you know what would happen the next day so we would march in, get rid of Maduro, then what?
0: Yeah, I mean that, that, you fundamentally describe the challenge. It, you know we remove Maduro then what? and what, what I could tell you what the chavistas want. they want to remove Maduro and then put another chavista in power. Uh, and then just recycle the same problem over again. So in five years, we're dealing it with, but this time we're dealing with much worse because they have more power, they have more leverage, they have more control and that's been what they've been doing up until this point, to be honest with you. All of the United States has been left involved, but internally with the political opposition in Venezuela, they've just been recycling themselves and leaders. I mean, there has already been a regime change in many respects when Chavez died. I mean, the, the from Chavez to Maduro was a regime change. There was a restructuring of the leaders in Venezuela, but the revolution was the same. The goals were the same. So that, uh, that didn't change. I think, you know, you mentioned Syria, and I think that's very instructive among all the other lessons that we've learned in, in some foreign policy failures of the past. But Syria, I think, was very uh, recent and, and 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 there's obviously a lot of connections to the Venezuela conflict, but uh, I think there's also some instruct, instructive lessons to, to take away from Syria. So what happened in Syria in 2011 when the civil war started? Uh, our first uh, uh, impression of the civil war, I'm sorry, first impression of the, the conflict in Syria was that it was a terrorist regime that was backed by Iran. So we said, okay, there's a terrorist regime backed by Iran, bad guys. We could take them out. Bashar is not the bad guy. We'll, we'll work with whoever. Yeah, Assad uh, was the bad army. guy. <laughs> Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna deal with that. If you just replace Iran for Cuba and 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 narcos for terrorists, it's kind of the same conversation. But what did we learn eight years later? Eight years later, we learned that a weaker Bashar al-Assad isn't a Bashar al-Assad easier to be removed. A weaker Bashar al-Assad is just a Bashar al-Assad easier controlled by external actors. Because then came in Russia, then came in Hezbollah, then came in Turkey. And so now it's not just Iran; it's all these other actors to the point that you know we don't really have good options in Syria. And if the only uh, you know, way we would probably even get come close to establishing a U.S. presence. There's a full-on war, which would be detrimental to our interests, not just in the Middle East, but globally, and not just uh, uh, also uh, debilitate our. Our, our economic standing uh, in, in, in the U.S. and domestically and abroad. So uh, that's the kind of bad decisions that lead to limited options that allow us to be essentially to fail in our foreign policy objectives. So we cannot make those same mistakes in Venezuela. Uh, this is not, as I mentioned before, this is not just about Nicolas Maduro. This isn't um, uh, a one-way conversation about an individual. We have to be broader about our analysis and kind of think about what is Latin America mean to the United States what is our interest in the region as a whole? And what, what do we have to stand for? I mean, at it, fundamentally, we have to stand for something. And, in, and or globally, uh, we need to stand for something. And, and in Latin America, I'd say, you know, if you want to put up pillars that, that, that really put an obstacle to whatever Russia, Iran, China, and others are trying to advance in the region, uh, I can tell you what those pillars would be. Those pillars would be one is economic freedom, because no matter how you cut it, Russia, Iran, and China are not promoting economic freedom anywhere in the world, and much less in Latin America. That does not play into the strategic uh, benefits, and it does not play into the strategy. Uh, The other would be uh, sovereignty, uh, sovereignty in borders. Uh, They fundamentally are trying to weaken borders, uh, to challenge sovereignty, to be able to uh, take away the concept of the sovereign nation-state, to move past before 1648 in the, in the Treaty of Westphalia, because they, they want a multipolar world. They don't want the world to exist the way it is today, and they believe that the sovereign nation-state has been able to challenge them, and so they're trying to move to this multipolar uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, dimensions where they use uh, multilateral institutions to promote their interests. And then uh, lastly is uh, fundamentally multi-security and, and multi-dimensional security. Because what these uh, nations, Iran, Russia, China, Turkey, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, these autocratic nations have in common, I mean, there's many things, but among others, is that they fundamentally preach that security is in the hands of the state, that the state's the only person that provides security to its citizenry. And we know, and this is in our charters uh, with, with the Latin America and places like the organization of American States, that security is fundamentally multi-dimensional, and it's about the individual well being it's different than defense defense is the responsibility of the state security is the the, the responsibility of the citizenry uh, and they don't believe that and that, so these are pillars that we have to stand for we have to project with our allies in latin america and if we don't do that then we're just clouding the issue and we don't really know what we're defending in terms of Venezuela, we have governments in Latin America right now that are conservative governments yep. that want to align themselves with those values, and we're not. Uh, I don't believe. I think we are moving in that direction, but we're not taking advantage completely of that situation. <laughs>
1: I think that describes a lot of things in this administration. It's definitely, you know, just taking right steps. You know, with Bolsonaro in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Colombia. Um, but I, I guess what frustrates me is that, you know, I think if you and I would have been in charge the last number of decades, we would have built a Monroe Doctrine. We would have, you know, had, heck, instead of having our military bases in the Middle East to do God knows what, we would have had a, I mean, I don't know why we don't have a naval base in, in places like Argentina and, and Brazil. Um, The the trade deals, the carrots and sticks that we've done to no avail in the Middle East, but prop up the stronger nations there, stronger sovereignty, mutual defense alliances, mutual economic cooperation, trade cooperation, and that would have made it that the entire um, meddling of – China, Russia, you know, Hezbollah and Iran and these other actors, they couldn't get off the ground. But now that we didn't do that, and we certainly want to start building that, but I feel like we can't turn that on a dime enough to salvage what's going on in Venezuela now. And my fear is that – and again, I'm talking about a lot of conservative colleagues, and I understand why they think this way, but they reflexively see – Bad guy doing bad things, rolling over people in tanks, and we always treat symptoms. We react to imagery on on television um, rather than a long term strategic thinking. That unfortunately, you know, there's no shortcuts to the just total incompetence in, in Latin American affairs the last number of decades. So my fear is when it comes to Venezuela. I, I get the impression that too many think that this is a case of an external invasion. Like, hey, you know, Daniel, no, this is not like Syria and Afghanistan. Hey, you know, Maduro is a bad guy. You just get him out of there. And there's all these freedom-loving people that want, you know, want what we want. What do what you? What yeah. would what you say to that notion?
0: Okay, one, uh, well, so the, yeah, I agree with you, and there's a lot of people that the proponents for more military intervention in Venezuela uh, from the conventional military, meaning U.S. intervention in Venezuela. There's, there's two important points to raise with that. Uh, one is, and this is something we did at my center at, at, at SFS, we uh, did an analysis of a sample of media, hit, me, media reporting on U.S. intervention in Venezuela, which has gotten more voluminous and louder over the last few months. And what we discovered when we did an analysis of the reporting we we, we analyzed the sources of this reporting and kind of get to the origin of of the order of custody of where this reporting was coming from over 60 percent of the original sourcing for all these reports came from Russian state-owned media, Iranian state-owned media, Cuban state-owned media, and, and others, uh, actually through a network out of Spain that's called Network 50, or in Spanish Noro 50, that's kind of a cyber network that does echo chambers to propagate the narratives of these actors. So they are the ones actually pushing that narrative. So why would Russia, Iran, China want to push a U.S. intervention in Venezuela narrative? Because they understand on and, and, and a geopolitical level, that if the U.S. does something like that, not only does it break up our alliances that we have in the region, but it delegitimizes, delegitimizes, uh, uh, delegitimizes us fundamentally throughout the world, much like the Iraq War uh, did. So they're preparing for that scenario. The other point point to make: there's a lot of people that propagate that, not the, the state-owned media, but you know people that legitimately are concerned about Venezuela and legitimately want to see a resol- resolution of conflict, they're thinking more in the context of, may say Manuel Noriega and Panama. They think, okay, that goes back to that narco state comparison. They think that this is really just a thing where you have a corrupt criminal regime, and yep. we, we get the Marines, and they'll get them out of power, and then, you know, yeah. bingo, bingo, is done, and we'll have you know, some of the U.S. military presence, but we'll help reconstruct the country. Well, that's not it. And the people that say this is not like I'm Syria, they just haven't studied the history. This is not just like Syria. This is Syria. There's a direct connection through migration from Syria to Venezuela that took place 50 and 150 years ago that if you follow that migration trail, this whole conflict, this Bolivarian revolution would have never took place if it wasn't for Syrian refugees that arrived in Venezuela in the 1960s. Because they were undercover operatives that came in through a rat line, and they took the the, the communists in Venezuela and said, listen, stop that little warfare nonsense. You're just going to lose and adopt insurgency. Do what we did in the Ba'ath Party in Syria. Infiltrate your military. Use your military to capture the state and your state to capture society. That's exactly what the Bolivarians did. That's what separates it. From other revolutions in Latin America, so when they don't make this, they, they try to divorce this from the Middle East. They just fundamentally aren't studying the history of this because there is a direct connection to it. But I think you know when, when we get to what we do, it, it is a tricky conversation because doing nothing. Is also not an option. Just sitting around and waiting and thinking that this is going to just kind of go away on its own, that's how we got here. We, I think the United States did very little in Latin America. There were some sure. wars in the Middle East and wars in sure. Africa and other parts of the world. And so they, they, we kind of abandoned the region, and that vacuum allowed for these external actors to take place. But doing too much is dangerous. If we just think about this as just from a conventional lens and think that the U.S. Marines or you know, Southern Command is going to be able to mobilize the aircraft carriers and we're going to launch amphibious operations to you know, World War II style and try to take over Venezuela, that's a recipe for mass disaster and, and probably a provocation for a world war. So that's a horrible direction to go. But this is where I think this is uh, you know, up to us to make this conversation more dynamic because you know, I think there's certain individuals that want to make this a bidirectional conversation. You know, they, if you're a hawk. On foreign policy, which I believe you are, Daniel, and I know I'm a hawk on foreign sure. policy. Being a hawk on foreign policy doesn't mean being dumb. Um, yes. It doesn't mean we have to do, to repeat the same mistakes that we've made time and again. I mean, you can be a smart hawk. And that means that you can use other tools that are in our toolbox national security of asymmetric warfare that don't involve a large military footprint, involve economic warfare, involve cyber warfare, involve information operations. Our our Special Operations Command, our law enforcement intelligence community are well prepared, but in some ways are shackled because the political elements at the top, they either don't know or they don't have that uh, understanding, but they haven't employed this in the way of 21st century war.
1: So let, let me go one by one what, what some of that looks like. Um, some of this we, – we talk about it a lot, the proper use of soft power. So, I mean, you mentioned it anyway. T- to me, I'm more concerned about the cartels at our border, the mass migration, than even anything directly going on in Venezuela. But with that said, as you mentioned, anyway, in order to deal with our sovereignty, which we – that <laughs> that's the paramount national defense. In order to deal with the looming threat of Russia and China, which we definitely have to deal with, and threat of threat of Iran, we need to do certain things anyway in our hemisphere. And if we do those, hopefully that would also have, um, you know, short term effects with Venezuela as well. So, you know, obviously we don't want American footprint there because, like you said, it, it's not it's not going to end well. Um, the Bolivarian Revolution is still there. We're going to constantly have the insurgencies against us. We couldn't hold that, um, and you know, just because Maduro would be gone doesn't mean you know everyone would be uh, you know all peachy with us, and it, it would end the same way the Middle East does. But is our goal, in fact, do, uh, do you share this goal straight out? I mean, because this is what I said yesterday's show: to use certain level levels of power, which I want to discuss. Against Cuba and Russia in a way that will force Maduro out with no military action on our side. Is that the goal, or is it more complicated than that?
0: That's somewhat the goal. I would add uh, Iran and Hezbollah to that conversation. So, that, you know, China and yeah, Turkey, yeah. Have, we have to play a bit of a, a different game because they have more legitimacy in their national community and they have more hard power. But uh, Russia, Iran, Cuba, and Hezbollah do not have hard power, they have soft power. Uh, yeah, granted, Iran's building up its military arsenal, but it never uses it. Really, what, do, what does it use? It uses its proxies, it uses its surrogates, terrorist groups, cyber uh, propaganda, information. That's how they win these so-called uh, asymmetric wars. Cuba does the same thing. Cuba has a robust military, but their military is not going to defend anything because I, I guarantee, if they ever got in a conventional fight, they, 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 the, the military wouldn't react. They don't have the combat readiness for that type of operation, but that doesn't mean that that's how we should attack them. They're, go- they're going to attack us, and they have been attacking us in an asymmetric fashion using those soft power tools, um, and they will continue to do so, but they do so in a way to provoke us to use hard power, because the only way soft power beats hard power is when all- when you, you use ex- extreme use of military force. I mean, that's the definition of losing an asymmetric war, is extreme use of conventional military force, and so I think that's, well, they understand this. I mean, you know, from going back to the Maoists, to the Leninists, I mean, they understood the nature of this, uh, these type of conflicts. And what did Lenin say? He said, uh, politics is but war, but other means. You know, the kind of inverse of Clausewitz, which we said war is politics by other means. Mm-hmm. So they understand this kind of, you know, this, this nature of what warfare is, and they're using it uh, against them. So, yeah, I agree with you. I just think you have to add, I don't think you can discount Iran and Hezbollah from this because they're, fundamental to the conflict, not just in venezuela but throughout latin america because they operate networks and and you mentioned the cartels uh, earlier in, in, in your question and the cartels obviously cartels have been there you know, you know cartels have been in latin america since since i've you know stud, studied the region and you, know, you could throw a rock and you hit drug trafficking in, in the region that's that's it's it's, it's abundant uh, however cartels have transformed over time and I believe uh, – I can't say this uh, definitively, but I believe that cartels are starting to be used as tools, much like terrorist organizations are used as tools in this larger asymmetric play. Yeah. That the cartels don't even have complete autonomy over what they want to do. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're uh, commanded and controlled, but that means that they're being directed, guided, and yep. steered in directions that allow them to be part of this warfare. It's about a lot more than operationalize- yeah, you can operationalize narco-trafficking as a way to attack the United States. I'll give you a small example on that, and then I'll be quiet because, You know, narco-trafficking, we fundamentally look at it like a supply and demand. There's, you know, you know obviously drug, drug producers, there's drug con- uh, consumers, and then there's transiting in between. But beyond the supply and demand aspects of the of drug trafficking, once you get into the illicit side, it functions like an intelligence network. Like when a drug trafficker makes a meeting or, or, or gets a frontman or a cutout to provide us a, a, a sale, he operates much like a case officer. He has to screen, he has to scout, he has to spot and assess to understand how he can do his job without being detected. So what Hugo Chavez, I believe, understood, and the Iranians and others, the Cubans, understood is that they can use narco-trafficking like a parallel intelligence network against the United States to infiltrate the United States and also to operationalize drug traffickers into the United States. So I think that's a more advanced way of looking at drug trafficking rather than just the the, the, the harmful effects that drugs do on society.
1: Exactly. As Rahani said, I keep getting back to that a couple months ago. Drugs, migrants, terrorists. um <laughs> all all <laughs> all go together i mean and you see that because you know i i spoke with a bunch of sheriffs in texas and everyone's talking about this how the cartels first of all the cartels aren't in mexico i mean they're in mexico they're in america they're in all 50 states um i mean hsi just had a shootout with three migrant smugglers with ak-47s three of them were injured in phoenix i mean it's a couple weeks ago and um you know, they all talk about the quantum leap that they've taken, and it's about a lot more than drugs. Now, the human sex labor trafficking is is just as big. Stash houses don't just mean drugs anymore. They mean human stash houses um, on our soil. And, you know, you look at all this and all the push factors with the caravans and and everything, it kind of ties together. And that's why I wanted to get your first, you know, first soft PowerPoint. Trump's Alluded to this, I think he even tweeted about this um, sanctions on Cuba. So, one of the things uh, Obama's apology tour accomplished was breaking down all of the sanctions on Cuba, opening up relationships. And I never even knew this, but evidently it was so bad what he did that he agreed to all this. You, know, you would think, okay, at least if we're going to do that, there's the carrot, but now you have to take back your migrants. They won't even take back their criminal aliens. We have a tremendous—I mean, there's Cubans who have come here and been amazing people. There's also a big criminal element that you know this dates back to when when Castro started—you know—sending criminals here. There was a guy that was a murderer and and he murdered again. Um, this was just in the news in Miami. Now it might have been a rival, like cartel gang type of a guy, but he still he murdered, and we were trying to deport him for 12 years, and they don't take back their migrants. So to me, just from a sovereignty standpoint, you know, forget about Venezuela for a moment. We we need to be applying soft power to them. If we were to do that, what do you think we can do, and ha- what effect would that have on Venezuela?
0: Well, the Cubans have a large effect on Venezuela. I mean, they've been uh, one of the uh, principal supporters to the Bolivarian Revolution, also obviously to the Chavez and Maduro regime. Uh, matter of fact, I just I just came out of a. Uh, a uh, special meeting at the OAS Organization the of American States, where there was uh, several experts that talked about the Cuban presence, in, uh, along with the Russian presence, Iranian, and others. But they focus a lot on the Cuban presence. The U.S. ambassador to the OAS, an Ambassador called Trujillo, kind of emphasized this point uh, in, at this meeting at the OAS. But uh, so I think it's well documented, well known, the Cuban presence. But I, I want to add an element to that, which goes kind of outside of Venezuela into the migration. You know, Cuba has followed the migration patterns of the rest of the special interest aliens, the folks from outside the Latin America that have been coming into uh, the U.S.-southwest border. Uh, and, and I don't believe Cuba is listed – I might be wrong about this, uh, Daniel, be correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe Cuba is listed as one of the 35 SIA countries.
1: No, they're not. Um, no,
0: and, and I believe they should be. Because although they are from Latin America, they are very much taking a lot of those same routes. If you look at the SIA routes that migrate from Colombia through the Darien Gap into Panama, upwards north through Nicaragua into Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, um, and these are, you know, mirror the caravan routes as well. Um, the Cuban, there's always been Cubans that have been discovered along these routes, and if you think about it, I mean, that's the longest way for a Cuban to travel to get in the United States. Instead of crossing, uh, you know, the kind of L'Oreal into Florida, they go all the way to South America to go up to North to Brazil. It's awkward yeah. for yeah, uh, to Brazil. Yeah, I see some go all the way down to Brazil. That's the longest trip. Um, that's always been very awkward. Uh, I think that that route, and I think we have to examine what Cuba's role is on this migration. Uh, phenomenon and, and illegal migration phenomenon. And if Cuba's, you know, we do know Cuba has a tremendous intelligence network throughout Latin America. Are they, are they using their intelligence network to help irregular migration become what we've been describing a weapon of asymmetric war? So I think Cuba needs to be examined a little bit closer in that regard in terms of migration. I mean, they do have capabilities in this regard. And, and, and if we, it is determined that they're involved in this, they should be listed among the rest of the SIA countries so that they get that additional screening every time sure. they pass through these checkpoints.
1: Yeah, because, you know, if I'm looking at a typical Guatemalan migrant, there's a lot of problems we have. But one of the things I'm not worried about is that they're an actor for the state of Guatemala to engage in espionage and other things. No, it's just impoverished dudes. Some of them might be gang members sometimes. But, you know, you're not, that's not an SIA issue. But if I look at Cuba, I mean, this was Castro, I mean, his brother's um, M.O. for a long time, would be to send his guys here, and, and it's, it's an open secret to the world that we have an open border now, um, because this this administration's DHS doesn't seem to believe in the INA anymore, um, so they let anyone in, and, you know, we kind of, like you're saying, we kind of view Cuba as kind of that pot of, oh, Hispanic migration, so to speak, but I think you're right, I mean, that that's like, in my view, like like Iranian uh, migration,
0: yeah. Hey. yeah, I mean, you know, law, law enforcement officers probably be familiar with more with these terms, but you know, when you do cross border operations, you know, there's paying agents, there's transit agents, and these are usually intelligence operatives working um, covertly, and and they have to establish these networks and routes. You know, they, 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 can, they have to move uh, the momentum and the movement so that. You know, drugs, people, products can move through these uh, illicit uh, uh, movements uh, undetected. So, uh, that is an intelligence operation. That is, You need intelligence operators to do that. And obviously, the Cubans, um, that, that's their specialty. I mean, that's, you know, I think probably by and large, they punch well above their weight when it comes to intelligence operations relative to the bigger powers. So, that'd be, I, I agree wholeheartedly, they, they should be examined in that regard. I,
1: I, I want to get your comment on this. Um... A friend of mine at Texas, a uh, retired Texas DPS counter intel guy who dealt with the cartels, he sent me the following note. Um, and then I, I want to return back to soft power in Venezuela, but we got off on this a little bit because I think it all ties in. Today, due to the surge of migrants from across the world, the cartels are dealing with new challenges in collecting the PISO. Many migrants traveling from Central America cannot afford the tax ranging from 3000 to 6000 US dollars per person. Additionally, the cartel, look at this, the cartels cannot afford to house migrants until receiving payment. So kind of just like we're having the problem dealing with the overwhelming amount, they can't even capitalize enough because it's so overwhelming. So then he goes on to say, as a result, the cartels are collecting the personal identifying information for migrants, including family contact information, which is then confirmed and validated through phone call made to family members of the migrants. These migrants are then released to travel into the United States. Once through U.S. Immigration Customs, Process, migrants are immediately con- contacting smugglers and are receiving instructions where to go and who to contact to work off the debt while hmm. living domestically in our country. And he goes on to say how he is terrified that we're going to see a degree of criminality and human trafficking um, in our country as a result of that and all their operatives here. I just want to know if you have what to say on that from a from a. um more of a strategic standpoint, the actors in Latin America, what they would do to get involved in this.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's good. I mean, I, I didn't know about uh, that description. That's very alarming, actually. Even half of that's true. Um, you know, I, I guess what comes to mind is just what we discussed before, the opera, operationalizing drug trafficking to be more than just an illicit activity, to be a, a tool of war. To be able to destabilize, uh, I mean, drugs destabilize because of its effects on society, but drug trafficking and, and not just, you know, trafficking in general, human trafficking, sex trafficking, trafficking uh, uh, destabilizes to the point fundamentally that it challenges borders because, you know, to be able to traffic, you have to be able to cross borders undetected. And if you could do that successfully at a, at a commensurate rate. Uh, you then challenge the the, the state apparatus uh, of protecting uh, their people and their borders, and I think that that from a larger strategic play, I mean, who who has an interest in doing all this? I mean, I go back to the same actors, right? Russia, Iran, and China. They are the fundamentally the ones that want to see the world work in a different way. They, I mean, what if Putin say? Putin said that the fall of the Soviet Union was the biggest geopolitical catastrophe in the 20th century. You know, Xi Jinping talks about the dollar being the number one attack, the U.S. dollar hegemony being the number one attack on the international order. Uh, Iran, I mean, you just go a whole laundry list, I mean, they could drug the migrant center, so they say how oh, the, the United States is, is, is the big Satan, Israel's the little Satan. Uh, and so they, they, these, these actors that aren't fundamental allies, they, they, they should not work together. I mean, Russia and China uh, were enemies during the Cold War uh, and before. Uh, Iran and Turkey. I mean, those are two different empires, uh, two civilizations based off you know, Sunni Shia divisions of, of Islam. But they, I think, they've all just made the calculation. You know, the old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and, and that's what the enemy is the United States. Uh, and so they decided to team up, and, and, and if they achieve their objectives. I'm sure they're going to fight amongst each other, but we don't want to even get there because that means that they diminish and debilitated the United States. Um, so when you say that about drug trafficking, and in my perspective, that just kind of goes back without knowing the details of all that. But it goes back to that use of drug trafficking as a weapon, which I think is something that you know when we formed the DEA or when we formed all these anti-narcotic units, we didn't fundamentally think that they would ever evolve to that point. We knew that this yeah. may get bad, so you know we're having more supply, and they're having you know diverse ways and routes of how to uh, ship that supply. But we never maybe thought that we're going to actually use drug trafficking as a weapon. To uh, fragment society, divide society, use ways and means to be able to attack uh, our sovereignty, and I, and I think now we're seeing more and more of that. I think DEA done. Uh, the DEA, you know, they're at the head of the drug trafficking challenge uh, in, in the United States uh, government. However, they're not the only ones. I mean, Southern Command, for example, dedicates a lot of time and resources to interdiction operations, and that's a military command. And I believe that this kind of whole of government effort that needs to be formed even stronger yes. to look at drug trafficking from multiple lenses. You know, from like what are the DoD says, what does Treasury say, what does uh, you know Congress the, uh, say, what does DEA, FBI exactly. Yeah.
1: And that's why I'm so into designating the cartels as terror groups. It's not so much to get into semantic debate over what is terrorism. It's just because we're namby-pamby about everything, so that's just one indirect way of freeing up more tools to actually deal with them at a holistic level rather than trying to interdict and investigate and – you know, you can't investigate your way out of that problem. You have to go after the source of what's what's causing all of this. And again, like I tell my more libertarian listeners and we have them that oh I don't want a war on drugs, and I tell them, look, I'm not I'm not suggesting we do anything more on drugs as an end to itself. I'm suggesting that we do the things that we must do and should have been doing to protect our sovereignty. And then if we were to do that, come back to me about what the drug problem looks like, you're gonna have it, but it's not gonna be like like it is today in my view. Um, and it's just scary because the more federal and local law enforcement I speak to about this issue, the, you, you know, the average American they hear they hear this stuff and they think it's like crime, you know, like a domestic crime issue, and you know, usually just you know because of our problems in the inner city with a lot of blacks, we think oh it's like blacks doing it, but the reality is increasingly in these places, the worst elements are coming from transnational gang members. Um, there's a reason why in Chicago, you know, when people think of the shootings and the violence, they, they inherently think of maybe, like, say, a black demographic in, in the inner city. But there's a reason why, um, you know, the head of the Jalisco cartel is the most wanted guy in Chicago, uh, from Chicago uh, law enforcement. And and a lot of that is is trickle-down effect from what they're doing. And, yeah, I really wonder, you know, when going back to Rahani, drugs, migrants, terrorists – Man, <laughs> yeah, they—they they, they yeah, really they got too. us.
0: I mean, yeah, when, when you know, I could spend like five minutes talking about it, and Rahani just presented it in you know in a tweet, which I think you know it's, they say that you know those that can say uh, you know advanced concepts in simple terms know a lot about those concepts, and I guarantee you Rahani knows a whole lot about asymmetric war and a whole lot about how to use drug migrants and terrorists as weapons of that war. So uh, you know, I think I think you know, ironically, and that's a point. I think we should listen. Not, listen, that's not the, I think we should study our adversaries. I mean, this, 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 this applies to Venezuela with Hugo Chavez. He said what he wanted to do. He said, I'm going to take uh, Colombia at border Panama and I'm gonna create a new country and I'm gonna call it Greater Colombia in the yep. legacy of Simon Bolivar. He said this and we, we kind of laughed at him. We said, ah, he can't be real, he's joking. He's just a clown, goes in the United Nations and makes the provocative statement. Well, we're not laughing now. Uh, because it looks like whatever he's doing is having an effect in it. And I, I just came back from Colombia. I was there and, and Brazil for what close to a month. And I can tell you right now, the Brazilian and uh, in, in Colombian government are, are very worried about what's going to happen in Venezuela, because they, they're not so much worried that when this conflict erupts, that it's going to be like a frontal conflict where Venezuelan armed forces or, or even sure. those forces are going to attack it's uh, the, migration. the borders. They're worried. There's a worry about the migration, but they' worry that that already happened. the migration already happened. You have two million refugees in Colombia alone. They're worried that the networks already exist, that they're already sure. in their country. And when the conflict happens, those networks are gonna, those dark networks are going to illuminate. They're going to rise up and they're going to create conflicts all throughout the country. Similar to what they experienced with the FARC but times 10. So the, the, they are very concerned. I spoke to the head of the armed forces in Colombia and Brazil, and they're very concerned that they don't have this full network mapped out. So that's for one of the reasons I spent a long time over there, because we are helping them map those networks. And there's a lot of the, I mean, the known actors, right? Hezbollah, ELN, the FARC, the PCC in Brazil. I mean, these are known actors, but there's all these other subgroups that we don't really know what they are. They don't have a name, but they're clearly up to no good, and they're involved in narco trafficking, money laundering, illicit smuggling, But, but they're connected to these regimes, you know? And, and, and uh, that's and what's so frustrating. What
1: you know, like we've spent $45 billion a year to this day propping up Afghani, the Afghani government, whatever that even means. And I think of what we could have been doing with Brazil and Colombia and Argentina to a certain extent to have this bulwark against the Bolivarian alliance, which by extension is a bulwark against you know Russia, China, Turkey, Iran, and all this stuff. So, I mean, do you feel we're doing enough? What do you think we can be doing to work with to – we've talked before when you were on the show to harness this opportunity of numerous – Elections or, or elections in numerous countries in South America going in the right direction and having you know stronger, more conservative leaders there.
0: Everything begins with having a network. I mean you fight a network with a network. So we need to strengthen, solidify and enhance the network that we've built, but pretty much define more, more, more definitively that network. I understand. In Latin America, I can tell you right now, uh, the top countries, the top countries that we have is Guatemala, uh, Brazil, uh, Colombia, uh, and, and Chile. Uh, those are the top allies we have in uh, the entire region. Uh, and so we have to establish that network, not just at the state level, but at the non-state level, uh, and also uh, augment their intelligence capabilities to be able to, to, to deal with this, uh, threat and this, this kind of trans regional challenge. So in that sense, I mean, just everything begins with having the right team you have to establish that. I mean, that's how they operate, right? They, we wouldn't be dealing with this. if we, we just talked about a second ago, China and Russia didn't decide one day that they're going to cooperate. And more than cooperate, they're going to start working together, even though they have differences. Uh, same with Iran and Turkey. So they've established their network. They have their network. They're operationalizing. They're advancing it. Plus, they have their, their end states, their goals. Uh, we need to define all that and make sure that we do the same. Uh, and, and, and once we do, you'd be surprised. I mean, we have – the United States is, is – the only successful revolution in the world to be honest and we yeah. have uh uh connections in latin america that transcend beyond bilateral agreements we we are we are uh, connected through culture through language through religion and, and many elements that you know china russia iran they just got there and we've been there for centuries and this includes also spain and some of europe and if we Look at this, and we go back to the basics of what our foreign policy was supposed to exist, which you know goes to the Monroe Doctrine, but goes to a Jeffersonian approach of non entangling alliances around the world, but to protect your neighborhood, yeah. to have a good neighborhood. Uh, and if we just go back to the basics and create that alliance, uh, we, we, we could win uh, and we could defeat these threats um, and put them back where they came from.
1: You know, the other thing I think is so important um, I always write about uh, America's Hanukkah oil miracle. I mean, it's just unbelievable that, you know, just this past month, we've broken the record, record oil production. Um, We're up to what, you know, like 13 million barrels of oil. Uh, It keeps churning out until these liberal district judges shut it down. But putting that aside, um, you know, the U.S. is set to account for 80% of all growth in global oil production over the next 10 years. Um, you know, we're already we already export more natural gas than we import, and we're expected to um, become a net exporter by twenty twenty five. I mean, it just to me that's a big carrot that we have to defend against Russia, Iran, China, and really help some of these other Latin American countries with. Um, what do you see in terms of the economics and opportunities there that we could work with economics and trade and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, so I think you know this is one of the things that I think the U.S. administration is doing well, and, and we have but we have to promote it more. And I don't believe that you know with all the problems that are happening you know, both in Venezuela but in other parts of Latin America, we haven't promoted this uh, uh, vociferously enough. Which is a program in the Department of Treasury called America Crece, which is Spanish for America grows. And and remember, when we talk about Americas, we're talking in the broadest sense because South, Central, sure. uh, North, we're all Americans, you know. And in that sense, they say America grows because it's a series of uh, uh, trade deals and in infrastructure and energy that are basically preferential trade deals that allow our, our countries to have uh, um, uh, lower barriers of entry to be able to engage in these in these transactions in this trade. And it's a direct challenge to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, basically, it's saying, listen, you know, if you want to build your railway or your, your road. Uh, you know, you don't have to just go to run to China. We can do it for you, and we'll do it without you know, potentially sending a, uh, a spy satellite or something uh, within the package. So it, 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 I think that's a good program. I think that has to be promoted more, and I think it has to be pushed aggressively so that these countries in Latin America begin to realize the United States really is their best friend. I mean, they, they can deal with China. They can deal with Russia. But those have consequences, and those consequences are yeah. that those countries uh, are not transparent. They're not democracies. They're not you know, freedom-loving countries, and little by little, they're going to start to take away your freedoms as well.
1: We got to do it smart, broadly, smartly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, last question, I because I forgot to deal with this when we we're talking about what, what what we do about Venezuela in the here and now. Russia, how do we leverage Russia? Do you see any avenue in going on their part of the chessboard? Because I feel like their whole Latin American operation is to leverage us against their uh, prerogatives where they are. If we were to go to them and say, hey, you know, rather than pulling out of Poland, how about if we put in some extra missiles? How about if we start building some military bases in, you know, Bulgaria and Romania? Because frankly, we've had enough with Qatar and Turkey. I mean, I'm just, you know, spitballing here because they'll never do that because our government loves uh, those governments, but whatever. You know what I mean? Is there a way that is the way to get to Putin's heart to get him off our territory by going into his.
0: I mean, this, that is a good question. and something I've been asked repeatedly in Washington about um, what characteristics can we apply with Russia to get them to either leave Venezuela or just to not— not At least not back to Maduro. Trouble in, correct, yeah, not back to Maduro because cause much trouble in Venezuela. And I, I don't have a you know clear answer for that. It's something I'm actually thinking through myself. But I could say that you know you know what you mentioned uh, on the surface doesn't sound like a bad idea. I got to think through it a little bit more. I mean, if we kind of do a buildup in the near abroad, does that you know provoke them more? But I, I, what I my my instincts tell me that may not be a good idea because that's kind of what we've done in the past and the led to the situation. I mean, we we have built up uh, you know uh, uh, some level of presence in there you know in, in Georgia and, and obviously in Poland, but in, in in the Central Asia as well and in Russia. Russia, instead of backing up, they just move twice, you know, two steps forward. They go, they go even more aggressive. So we've got to see how that can potentially play out. My, my instincts go towards the angle of we need to raise the cost of Russia's activity in Latin America, meaning that every time they do something, they got to pay for it. Yeah, and they have to pay for it. Not, I don't mean like you know, military kinetic uh, attacks. Sure. Talking about they got to uh, pay for it through the reputation. Uh, you know, the, Russia's trades off its credibility. Uh, the more their credibility is hit, the more harder they have. The ability to maneuver. Uh, they're, they're using China as kind of a, like, like many other these small nations are doing, as their credibility enhancer. Uh, and there's a lot of wedges between that relationship that we can that we can insert. I mean, as I mentioned before, uh, Russia took territory from China in the 20th century. I'm pretty sure China remembers that. So there's a lot of places that we can wedge those oh, yeah. two actors. that's not agree on the same thing uh, universally and globally. So I think that's a very important part of, of how we can deal with Russia uh, in Venezuela and in, and in Latin America.
1: Yeah, driving a wedge between them and China, that's a whole another thing. Because, I mean, I might be wrong, but Putin's a threat. But to me, I don't get the impression that he wants to take over the entire world. He has his prerogatives. China, I mean, the guy just went up to a podium a couple of weeks ago and said, this is our time. Um, we will lead this entry, um, and if I'm Russia, I mean he's got to know that America—you know—our generals are more worried about transgender uh, diversity quotas than doing anything to threaten him. He knows China is a different story. Um, you know, he'll he'll blow off smoke about America, but he's got to know China's a greater threat in the long run than America
0: is. Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe I believe. I mean, if you look at our national security strategy, it's fundamentally shifted in the Trump administration from just looking at what the, the bomb administration called violent extremism, which is fundamentally terrorism, uh, and or you know organized crime and all these non-state threats. They're just saying, look, look all that exists, and we're worried about it, but we're also worried about two nations, in particular Russia and China, because they're not just challenging us in this non-state uh, domain, but they're also challenging us conventionally as well. I mean, Russia China is, is engaged in a military buildup on the South China Sea, as well as in other parts of, of Africa and, and limited but increasingly in Latin America and, and, and they're challenging us in domains that are not conventional, they're challenging us in space and cyberspace, which are, you know t- takes away from the air, sea, land kind of conventional military presence. So uh, they're, they're building that up and I think we see that and yeah, you, can, you can look at it just by reading the National Space Strategy and the shift from the 2016 strategy the 17th into the 18 that was released last year. So um, yeah. yeah, I think China's a big, big player.
1: No, absolutely. Look, uh, always too much to say, too little time when we have you on the show. Um, always keeps us informed. And, and folks, you know, you could email me. Let me know if, if you want me to ask Joseph any other questions offline. We could discuss it on our subsequent shows because, you know, he always keeps me well informed on these issues. And uh, you could check out Secure Free Society, their briefings on many, many issues. Lots of important work they've done. They've done good work on the caravans. We've cited that before. Joseph, as always, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks, man. It's always a pleasure.
1: There you have it, folks. That was Joseph Humeyer, Executive Director of Secure Free Society. And I just want to say he's a real terrific guy. Um, you know, one, one of the more pleasant aspects of being in this line of work, and as you all well know, I'm pretty jaded about it. It's just meeting some people like this that aren't always on the news. You don't see them on Fox, but they really know what they're talking about, and I've really learned a lot from them. And I hope you have as well. Again, always send me your comments. I just want to close with with a thought. You know, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, called CIGAR, put out their latest quarterly report. And they noted that, unlike in previous reports— the Department of Defense has barred them from getting any information. They can no longer publish the percentage of provinces that they have operational control over, how many of the Taliban have control over, and how many are contested. Um, that was a pretty direct metric of what sort of progress we're making there, if you could even call it progress, backing an Islamist Afghani government in this 1300 year tribal warfare. But nonetheless, that was the big metric. They're no longer publishing it. So I could tell you if they were gaining ground, they would publish it. So we have 14,000 troops still on the ground there, and that's known, it you know, it's always winds up being more. It's officially, as of last year, it was around 14,000 troops after that little surge. We're spending 45 billion a year we spent like a hundred billion propping up this government. Do you understand what we could have done with that? I mean, after hearing Joseph and understanding like there are legitimate actors, you see, like a guy like Bolsonaro, what we could be doing to prop him up and prop up our prerogatives in our own hemisphere to counter Russia and China and Iran and stop the destabilization of Latin America, which causes a lot of these migration problems. And we're just aimlessly in there because it's become a cottage industry this is the problem when we have a movement that just responds to what we see on television at the moment and doesn't have any clear strategic thinking there's literally no understanding of what a pro-america foreign policy looks like what it means to be a hawk but a hawk meaning We're very hawkish about our prerogatives, about defining them and defending them, and very hawkish about not undermining them and distracting from them and wasting resources. We're conservative. We want to conserve our resources, our resolve, our time, our money, our military for where it actually affects us. I mean, could you imagine that they're announcing that they're not publishing that information anymore? You know exactly what that means. It's an utter disgrace. But again, you know, if it's not on Fox News, unfortunately to a lot of people, it's not important. But I wanted to give you guys that prerogative. One other thing just on foreign policy, real quick. You know, we're, we'll get back to immigration, some other stuff, domestic stuff, um, courts tomorrow. But today, the Senate is conducting a vote to override the president's veto. This is only only a second veto of his presidency on the resolution to get out of Yemen. Now, as I've told you before, it's a complicated issue because you have a lot of people doing the right things for the wrong reasons, the wrong things for the right reasons. In the past, I have criticized, particularly under Obama, what we did in Yemen because we were doing what we do everywhere else. We had the Navy SEALs fighting Al Qaeda and Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula cells while our green berets were working with that D government tied to those very cells that, you know, we fought with and we lost uh, a Navy SEAL there in January of 2017. I was like, dude, that's a dumpster fire. We need to get out of Yemen. So you would think I would jump on this opportunity to get out of Yemen. But what I'll tell you is concerning is there's two things that have occurred since then. Number one, this is not about, oh, we need – I mean, maybe for a couple people like like Mike Lee, um, it might be that way. But for almost all of these guys, this is not about – Oh, you know, we need to go back to having congressional authorization for use of force. We need declaration of war. Um, You know, we we don't have our prerogative straight. It's all about virtue signaling over Khashoggi to stick it to Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not saying we need to be schleppers for Saudi Arabia. I certainly don't. I think we should have them schleppers for us. But they are, you know, under MBS, it is a very different government. They are working with us a lot more than they're against us. And I have no need to stick it to them just as an end to itself. Moreover, while I certainly don't believe in choosing sides within an Islamic civil war, but when it comes to the Houthis and versus Al-Qaeda, there is one important difference between Al-Qaeda rummaging around in Yemen and Iranians through the, the use of statecraft and the Houthis controlling the situation in Yemen because the Iranians are starting to threaten – the straits there in the Gulf of Aden. That is a prerogative to keep the shipping lanes open. I don't need to get involved in their land battles and I certainly don't want to prop up Al Qaeda and the Sunni insurgency uh, backed by Saudi Arabia in order to fight Iran. I don't I think we need to fight Iran again by directly going after them with soft power, all the things we've spoken about over the last year. Choke them off. That's the way to do it. But you know, in the meantime, there is an importance of keeping the shipping lanes opened. So not that you have to pick a side, but if you have to err on a side, the Iranians are more of a problem there. So to go up against Saudi Arabia and the Sunnis is just stupid. Now, you know, some of my friends are telling me, "Yeah, I, Daniel, I understand, but this is the place to take a stand. We're always taking a stand in the wrong way. We're always trying to have a talking point. Oh, we're finally reclaiming congressional authority. No, you're not. Because Afghanistan, Afghanistan's the bigger problem. We're barely doing anything in Yemen. Even if you disagree with it, we're barely doing anything. Afghanistan, we're pumping 45 billion a year there. If you want to defend congressional Article I prerogatives and sanity in foreign policy, that's the one to talk about. But they're too scared to go up against that. Yemen's the easy avenue because Khashoggi. It's the same way like, we're going to defend article one prerogatives by going up against the president's emergency declaration and reprogramming of DOD funding for border wall. Really? Like that's the battle you're going to pick. No, when you don't fight the courts, you're not defending article one prerogatives. That's my issue with Mike Lee and Rand Paul, some of these guys, they wait until the left agrees with them for different reasons. And they're forever joining with the left. They do that on jailbreak too. I just don't like that. I just, this whole Yemen thing is just whatever. But anyway, I hope you had a broader sense of foreign policy today. Um, You know, we haven't talked real, you know, real foreign policy game in a while. Hope this show finds you well. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for growing our audience. Send this to your show to 1015friends. Until tomorrow, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.